0: This week, the comic does explain The Eternals Part 1. Yes, thank you, Ben. This time, we'll be looking at our protectors sent from above, The Eternals, uh, Jack Kirby's uh, second run at creating his meta-myth. Um, so, Darren, where should we start with
1: So, uh, as you say, this is Jack Kirby's kind of like second try at this. So I very strongly recommend that, uh, you know, listeners uh, also check out our Kirby episode uh, in which we kind of like discuss his history and his various kind of like battles with different publishers. Um, But so to kind of like quickly sum up rather than go over the details in that again in full, uh, Jack Kirby had left Marvel at the end of the 1960s uh, due to, um, you know, several arguments with stan lee and uh, marvel's management and that sort of thing and he was recruited very heavily to go to dc in 1970 and you know kind of like do for them you know create titles and that sort of thing the way that he had done for marvel i mean at the at marvel he had created uh so many characters you know the fantastic four and thor and uh you know the hulk and iron man and the x-men etc cetera, etc cetera. uh you know the just a uh Cash generating machine as far as intellectual property goes. So DC was very excited to have him come on board. Unfortunately for them, what Kirby was interested in and what he was kind of like really working on at that time uh, was not uh, as immediately kind of like grasped by the public. Most people, uh, most or many uh, fans and critics of comics think that his work at DC in the early 70s was some of the best that he ever did. But it definitely sold considerably less well. It was, uh, you know, maybe uh, the audience wasn't quite ready for some of this stuff. Um, Kirby is, certainly has a very kind of, like, mannered style of writing and plotting uh, that without Stan Lee, like, was not really, uh, you know, as well regarded by the public. And so the main thing that Kirby had done while he was at DC uh, was the creation of the Fourth World books, the, the kind of, like, the core series that he had done. And this is the new gods, Mr. Miracle, the Forever People, uh, and then incidentally, also a bunch of uh, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen kind of like got swept into that as well. And this is the story of Darkseid, uh, you know, who would go on to be, uh, you know, perhaps one of DC's greatest villains, but not for years afterwards. Um, And the entire creation of this myth, of this mythology of an actual. race of cosmic beings or two races of cosmic beings and an eternal cosmic war between them, uh, very much in the manner of the stories that he had been doing in his late in his run for Thor, right. Uh, where, you know, he had, uh, all of these, you know, like gods and myths and stories, but he would not be tied to, uh, the idea that Thor had to also be part of the Avengers and, uh, you know, that uh, Norse mythology, like as, as the basis, he would create his own very kind of like Shakespearean um, style mythological stories with, you know, uh, uh, two great leaders uh, in a war exchanging their sons uh, to be raised by the other as part of like a, you know, peace treaty and that sort of thing and how they each kind of like grew up. Uh, you know, on each other's worlds. It was all very kind of, you know, like family drama and everything. And it just didn't go that well. And most of it got canceled before Kirby had a chance to finish the stories. So when Kirby's five-year contract at DC ran out in the end of 1975, uh, DC was certainly not willing to pay him as much for another contract, for him to, you know, like, re-sign. Because, you know, the the 1971 to 75 run that he had been on He had created a lot of fascinating stuff, but none of it had made DC very much money. And so uh, when it came time to kind of like negotiate again, Marvel called him again uh, at the end of it and said, why don't you come back to us? Uh, You know, like we'll sign you to a contract and you can do all these things. Um, We'll pay you more than what DC was willing to offer its second time, less than what DC was willing to offer its first time. Right. But we'll still you'll do better by us. And hey, Stanley's not here anymore. And we know he was one of your big problems, was getting along with him. Um, And so Stan won't be in the office interfering with your stuff. Uh, You know, you'll have uh, freedom to pick what uh, comics that you want to work on, etc. And, you know, come come home and we'll promote it as, you know, the king is back, right, kind of thing. Um, Which he did. He took that deal. Uh, He came back to Marvel they handed him two uh, titles that he was already quite familiar with, right? Like, there, there was a lot of rumors at the time in, like, 75 that he was going to come back to Thor or that he was going to come back to Fantastic Four, both of which were still big-selling titles even after he had left, right? Those are two of, you know, Marvel's mainstays. Um, but instead, uh, and, when, you know, we don't know exactly the reasons why, he instead took on a couple of, you know, kind of, like, secondary uh, uh, titles that he had created and was associated with in an effort to make them cooler again, right? So he took on Captain America, which he had not done for many years um, and he took on Black Panther uh, which he had created uh, but had gone in a very different direction under the work of Don McGregor and Bill Graham and uh, you know other uh, writers and artists who had taken on Black Panther uh, after him there was some hard feelings about Don McGregor was not happy about being removed from Black Panther. Um, And, uh, you know, Kirby basically ignored all of the continuity that McGregor and Graham had built up uh, over their, you know, very critically acclaimed run that once again wasn't actually selling that great. Um, And basically, you know, Kirby just ignored that and started over with his own series. And so a lot of fans were unhappy that, uh, you know, McGregor's stuff was being ignored. Uh, McGregor was unhappy that, uh, you know, he'd been kind of, like, removed from a title that uh, he, you know, had put a great deal of effort into, etc. It just was, you know, there were some some hard feelings. The one title at the time when Kirby came over that he created whole cloth rather than taking over an existing character was basically going to be an effort to uh, redo what he had done with the new gods and do it slightly differently this time um and uh, you know uh, uh, get a chance to actually finish the story that he had not been able to finish uh, over at DC and so this title was going to be called the Eternals and the Eternals was going to be much more the, the new gods are you know kind of like a a story that takes place in deep space and it's only kind of incidentally that it gets related to to earth right the main reason earth gets involved in the stories uh, of the new gods is because we're hiding the anti-life equation, and that's why Darkseid keeps coming over here to pester us. Um, but the new gods themselves don't have that much like attachment to Earth, and Kirby thought that that was a story problem. And so he said, okay, in, the, in this mythology, in this new kind of like setting that I'm going to create, um, I want to tie it much more to humanity, right? and I'm going to tell this story that is the history of humanity now there's a bunch of things that are going on here for this um marvel in the time that kirby has gone like a lot of the writers and artists at marvel were ones who were paying attention to the new gods right the new gods were kind of like the velvet underground (laughs) of like comic book titles right not that many people bought their albums but everyone who did went on to start their own band right you know kind of kind of influence right and so a lot of people, a lot of writers and artists thought that that was some of Kirby's best work, and Marvel was perfectly willing to rip it off on a regular basis. Uh, Jim Starlin fully confesses when he sat down, he was writing Iron Man, and when he went to create Thanos, the image that he had for Thanos in his mind looked a lot like Mobius from The New Gods, um, in that he was going to be sitting in a chair all the time that like flew around uh, and he didn't have kind of like quite the you know size or the features or the build or anything for him. And when he first showed a picture of Thanos, a drawing of Thanos, to Roy Thomas, who was going to be the editor, he was the editor of the Iron Man at the time for it, Thomas said, if you're gonna rip off a new God, rip off the cool one. <laughs> right? Rip off Darkseid. Don't sure. rip off Mobius. Mobius is stupid. You know, Darkseid's awesome. Make a, give Marvel a a, a version of Darkseid. Um, and so, you know Thanos basically kind of, like, was, was redone to resemble Darkseid considerably more than he had been, uh, you know, in the first version. He's not a straight ripoff of, of Darkseid in any way, but he is, you know, influenced by his look, right? Um, the other things that um, Kirby is into at this point, for this, uh, that he wasn't into as much in the early days of setting up the New Gods, is he is now reading a whole lot of Eric Van Dyneken and those kind of writers. And if you're not familiar with Eric Van Daniken, uh, he was a pseudo-scientist, kind of a quack archeologist basically, uh, who first kind of like put forth the theory, the idea that what if a lot of uh, human mythological stories, the reason that human myths are similar to each other is because they are all retellings of the times in the ancient past when humans met aliens. When aliens came to visit the Earth and like, you know, maybe they gave us technology or something or they told us to build the pyramids or whatever, you know, they taught us things that we didn't know. And then they took off into space and the stories that humans told about those visitations and about those encounters eventually became human myth, right?
0: So, you know, the kind of things they talk about on the History Channel.
1: And exactly what the History Channel is today, right? That's sort of (laughs) foolishness, right? Right. Um, This really, like, got started in the early 70s, and Eric Van Donneken wrote a book called Chariots of the Gods that, like, had, you know, enormous influence in the woo-woo crackery, you know, uh, uh, world of, uh, you know, New Age philosophy and that sort of thing. Became extremely popular, and there were a hundred different, you know, like, other books that came out, you know, going along those same lines over the next two or three years. Jack Kirby devoured those books. He loved that idea. The idea that, like, mythology, which was one of his favorite topics to start out with, was in fact possibly related to an actual set of stories that we have handed down and mistold over thousands of years. That's an idea that he could not get out of his head, right? Like, it's all about this. And so, new gods. Was kind of like separate from human mythology, right? Like it was a new, different story being told. Whereas the Eternals were very much going to be the story of human gods, right? And like the the, the relationship that humans had to their gods would be the relationship that we had to the Eternals and the Deviants as he created them. And so uh, he gave them a bunch of Mesoamerican trappings physically uh, in their appearance because that's where. Van Daniken had suggested a bunch of this stuff had happened, right? Like he was going from Mesoamerican myths and from the line drawings in Nazca and all of the other, you know, kind of like foolishness that Van Daniken was on. Um, But on the other hand, Kirby knew that most of those myths weren't that well-known to white people. And so instead he leaned very heavily on associating his individual characters with Greek mythology, which is why all of the Eternals have names that are just kind of like misrepresentations basically of Greek myth names of, of Greek myth gods and demigods and human heroes and that sort of thing. That our hero is actually going to be called Icarus and uh, his friend is going to be Macari, who is, would be Roman, not Greek. But, you know, Jack didn't really care about the details of that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, other characters, Zerus and Circe and Thena, all of these characters would have been mistaken to be, you know, to, to be the gods, right? Like would have been, the, the stories would have been told badly and accreted to other stuff over thousands of years. And that's where we get modern myths today. Um, so Kirby, you know, is very excited by this idea and he's going to create a whole new universe and a whole new setting of, of, uh, of the stuff. He has also just recently been reading Arthur C. Clarke um, and was a big fan of the book Childhood's End. And Childhood's End has two things in it, basically, that Kirby swiped for, uh, for the Eternals. One, the idea that there was a secret race of people, a secret race of beings who had lived among us, who were helping to guide us to the future, right? Like Kirby's Eternals did not piss off into outer space the way that, uh, you know, the, the way that Van did, right? Like the Vandonekens aliens have not been back since they gave us pyramids and electricity and whatever else that they supposedly gave us. Um, and Kirby felt it was much more interesting if they had stayed here and lived among us as secret immortals and were like guiding humanity to some sort of a future, right? That's a, that's a, a plot point basically of Childhood's End. Um, and the other one is in Childhood's End, you have, uh, there, there's a sequence in which uh, people kind of like join their minds together telepathically to kind of like share their thoughts in what is called the Overmind in the book. And Kirby basically swiped the Overmind and turned it into the Uni Unimind, uh, which is a similar sort of effect that happens in the eternal stories. So here's Kirby all wound up, right? Like he's really excited to do these stories. Uh, he's going to finish, you know, kind of like the, the story that he was unable to do in New Gods. He's all full of Vandana can silliness and he's all full of Arthur C. Clarke and he creates the basic concept of the Eternals. Now, the story of the Eternals in the comics, it's quite different from the one in the movies. Basically, the story is that these gigantic space gods, the Celestials, come to Earth back when humans are still like furry and living in trees, right? Like it's a, like even pre caveman time. Um, you know, it, it's like the, the opening sequence of 2001 kind of like level of humanity there. Um, and they decide for their own inscrutable space god reasons, uh, which will be explored multiple times over the course of the, the, the runs of Eternals, to experiment on us, to basically take those kind of like proto-humans and create three different races out of them, right? Uh, there will be the uh, humans who are like us, who uh, you know, have no particular powers, but have the possibility of becoming something great. Right, like we will slowly evolve over time. We will get smarter. We will get better, uh, but it will take generations, et cetera, to do that. And uh, you know, at this point, of course, it's not tied to the Marvel universe, so there's no like concern about uh, you know superhumans in any other uh, uh, you know version of the story, right? Um, and then there will be the Eternals. Uh, the Eternals will be kept to a very small number. They will be super advanced but they will never change. They will never evolve. They're immortal. They're going to stay immortal when an immo- immortal, uh, eternals can't crossbreed with each other, right? Like an immortal and another immortal cannot have a child. Um, um, uh, an eternal and a human can have a child, but the child will be human, not eternal, right? So there's no, they're, they're stuck in stasis, right? Like they are exactly the way that they were at the time that they were created. And then you have the deviants and the deviants Mutate insanely quickly. They have very short lifespans, with one exception. Basically, uh, they you know live; they, they're born, live, and die only in a few years. No two deviants are anything like each other. They all look completely different. They are all just like wildly mutated uh, from kind of like you know the genes that, uh, that that are passed down to them when they're when they're born, and so they go through evolution extraordinarily quickly. Um, but they are all, uh, you know, many of them are not suited to survive in this environment. Most of them are monstrous in appearance. Many of them are monstrous in their kind of like attitudes basically. And so they are just kind of like this chaotic mix of, uh, of, of creatures. Um, and so it's basically you've got three different ways that evolution could act out, uh, with these, in these three races. And then the Celestials are like, okay, well, we'll check back, you know, a few million years from now and see what happened with this experience. And they, you know, kind of like leave some, you know, secret hidden stuff around the world for, you know, humans to do or anybody to eventually dig up, basically, uh, to give them the signal to come back to say, hey, we've gotten interesting. And the Celestials will come back and they'll decide what to do about us. Right. They'll see which of these three uh, versions of humanity worked out best. And probably kill the other two and then take the three, you know, that would be uh, that, that would be interesting and, you know, continue to work on them. Um, so they do that. They leave. Um, a couple of the Eternals, who are, you know, like aware of the existence of Celestials and have had some limited amount of contact with them, uh, decide that they are going to take on the job. That, like, clearly what the Celestials meant is that the Eternals are supposed to look out for humans right? That like humans are constantly in danger from the threat of the deviants uh, who, you know, like live underground and are monstrous and some of them eat people and they're just, you know, uh, uh, terrible. Um, and the, the, the Eternals need to protect us from them and make sure that we survive until the Celestials come back, right? And I, I think that that's, the, uh, that that's the purpose. And so in the first few issues of the comic, is the discovery of the existence of this backstory by the humans, right? Two human scientists, uh, Dr. Damien and his beautiful daughter, are exploring Incan uh, ruins, basically, uh, because they have you know, uh, uh, gathered all of these archaeological clues that suggest that there's a secret hidden chamber at the base of these ruins. And they've hired a guide uh, to bring them there. And when they get in, they open it up, and it's all full of you know like super advanced celestial technology, right? And the fact that they have like opened this up and started messing around with stuff um, is one of the things that's going to bring the Celestials back, right? It's calling the Celestials to come home because humans have now gotten interesting enough to have found this, right? And uh, it turns out that the secret guide that they that the you know the the disguised guide that these two scientists have uh, hired is Icarus, the, one of the leaders of the Eternals, and he is now obviously very concerned that, you know, like the Celestials are coming back. He's not sure if this is a great idea or not. Uh, Ajax shows up very quickly in the first couple of issues, and he's all about the Celestials coming back. He thinks it's great. And then we also meet the Deviants, who are, of course, plotting to, you know, steal Celestial power and attack them as soon as they come back because they're resentful, of both the humans and the uh, Eternals because they got a much better deal uh, in these original experiments. And so you set up this battle between these two mysterious races that have been always fighting historically behind the scenes, uh, and humans have been unaware of them until just now. And now the space gods are coming back, and maybe they're going to judge us. Maybe they're going to destroy us. What exactly is you know like going to happen? That's the that's the setup of the first couple of issues. It's very Kirby. It's very uh, you know like of his style. It's a very kind of you know like set, uh, uh, you know, uh, a premise basically, right? And over the course of the, you know, first, the, the 19 issues, basically, between uh, 76 and 78 that this runs, um, Kirby introduces a cast of literally dozens, right? In just 19 issues, we meet, like, 20 important characters. Uh, that's, he is just, he's, his mind is just full of all of these stories and all of these characters, uh, and he can't wait to get them out. And so no one of them gets that much attention. Right, like clearly, Icarus is the one of the one of the lead characters, and he gets kind of the most. But uh, within the first few issues, we've introduced Ajax and Cersei and the Celestials and Crow. That's in the first four issues, and then issue number five, we meet Zuras, Thina, and Makari. Issue number eight, we meet two deviants who are really interesting in Ransack, the Reject, and Carcass. We meet Sprite in nine. Uh, we meet Kingo, Druig, and the Dolphins and a bunch more of them in 11, right? It's literally just a frenetic pace of turning out these characters over the course of a year because he has so much that he wants to do and so many stories in his head to tell about these characters that he just can't, you know, he's he's cramming them all into a very small amount of space. Uh, Because of that, it it reads very cramped. It reads like... um, There's a whole lot of story behind the scenes that we don't know yet. And within a year or so, that starts to get pretty frustrating. Right? Like at some point, you're just kind of like, come on, Jack, can we get to the plot here? Can we actually get to, you know, like some of the core stories that you wanted to tell? Can you please stop introducing new characters for a moment so that we can actually, you know, like resolve some of this plot? The editors at Marvel at this point are having a similar problem because here they've got a Jack Kirby title that is drawing some, certainly some interest, even though some people are complaining about it, that everybody's kind of paying attention to it. And they can't cross, it's not set in the Marvel Universe, right? And they're like, uh, you know, we didn't tell Kirby that he could have his own universe for this, right? This is not, this was not part of our deal. Uh, nothing in your contract says, says that you can do that. We insist that you set this in the Marvel Universe. You need to, you need to put some stuff in here that makes it clear that this is happening in the same comics so that we can have Spider-Man show up if we want to or something, right? It's, you know, like, we want to boost some sales. And Kirby's like, no, that's a, I, I never wanted that. This always, you know, my whole idea for this was it was going to be a separate universe. And editorial comes back to him and says, no, uh, it, it, it can't be. Uh, you know, it's, we'll, we'll, we'll fire you before we let that happen. And so Kirby gives in and uh in the very first few issues somewhere around issues like five and six it becomes he you know that's you can tell where he loses the fight right because first shield appears in the story and then the hulk appears in the story now the hulk that shows up is not the real hulk it's a robot but it looks just like the hulk and it acts like the hulk and everybody thinks that it is the hulk you know it's, it's actually part of a plot but uh you know it's everybody clearly they know who the hulk is in this story right And it was a very big deal for Marvel to get the Hulk into the story because we are now in the uh, summer of 1977 when he actually shows up and the Hulk is about to get a TV show, right? Like his movie actually comes out in November of 77 that starts the series. So they're super excited about making sure that the Hulk is in every comic in 1977 uh, to, you know, help promote the series. Uh, And so, you know, Kirby is basically forced to include the Hulk in his story, even though he never wanted him there in the first place. This, of course, completely screws up Kirby's entire point of these characters, right? His entire idea was that Zoras was going to be the character, with, you know, the, 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 the king of the gods that we would know through mythology as Zeus, right? And Athena was going to be Athena, and Circe and Icarus and all of these other characters were going to be the reason we had myths about these characters at all the Marvel universe already has Greek gods in it, right? Like we've met Hercules has already been on the Avengers at this point, right? That's, you know, the entire idea that like these guys were going to be the Greek gods has been completely undermined by the fact that we've already met the Greek gods hundreds of times in Marvel universe. Thor keeps getting into fights with them and stuff. And so clearly these guys are not the reason that we have these myths. Right? There really was a Zeus. There really was an Odin. There really was a Hercules, you know, and so all of the new gods suddenly are just look like cheap ripoffs of them instead of the cause of these stories, right? So Kirby is immediately undermined uh, by the, the forcing him to not be able to tell this story in its own universe. And this will happen, of course, to Kirby over and over again throughout his, you know, like career with Marvel. The same way uh, he had no intention of Machine Man of being part of the Marvel universe. You know, the entire story of Machine Man is the idea of the first robot that achieves sentience, right? That's a big deal. That's a big premise of the story. Marvel Universe has all kinds of robots in it, right? Like Machine Man is not is nothing special. In the Marvel Universe, we've already met a pile of like thinking robots who are you know totally sentient and intelligent and whatever. We have the Vision already. We have all of these other you know the Human Torch was an android, uh, you know like back in the forties. So suddenly Machine Man's not special anymore, and the story really doesn't work, right now. The new the Eternals aren't special anymore; they're just cosmic beings who like were briefly mistaken for being the gods. Um, so Kirby, you know keeps trying he keeps kind of like pushing this out but it lasts 19 months total this entire run of kirby um the eternals doesn't sell it gets sells less each thing that's going on readers are dropping off from it because they're like why is the story never actually going anywhere um everybody is very excited about all the character designs and interesting stuff that he's put in it but they realize there's no you know there's there's no through line Right? This doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And so eventually sales drop off to the point where Marvel cancels it. And Jack Kirby says, you know what? I'm, this is my second try with Marvel. just didn't work out, which is really actually kind of my third try with Marvel, if you count some of the timely stuff that he did. Um, it, this, this just never happens. And he's, he leaves uh, Marvel again, and this time never comes back. Uh, he's, he's finished with it. Um, so the Eternals has been canceled. The uh, Captain America and Black Panther have been returned to other writers. Actually, Black Panther gets canceled pretty quick too after he leaves. And um, there are still writers at Marvel who are still super into his ideas, right? They love his characters. Roy Thomas, very soon after Kirby leaves and the Eternals gets canceled, realizes, well, crap, we kind of ended the Eternals without really kind of like giving, getting the story anywhere close to some sort of satisfa- satisfactory conclusion. And Roy Thomas, at that point, is writing um, Thor and working with Walt Simonson. It's Walt Simonson's first run on the art uh, there. And so Thomas and Simonson, between them, write a story that kind of, like, finishes the story of the Celestials. The Celestials come to Earth, and Thor meets all of the new gods and teams up with them uh, to kind of, like, stop the Celestials from judging Earth, from judging humanity and, and destroying us all. And in order to do that, Thor winds up meeting with uh, the representatives of a whole bunch of other, like, pantheons of gods who have not appeared before in the Marvel Universe, right? Like, he Thor meets, like, Chinese gods and South American gods and all of these other gods uh, who are lending him their power, right, through Odin. Odin organizes, like, a meeting of basically the heads of all of the pantheons, and they empower Thor with like a magical suit of armor that's going to allow him to actually stand up to a fight against the Celestials, um, it does in fact work out, though not quite the way that you know you would think from this. Uh, and the Celestials are dissuaded, basically, you know, kind of like sent back off into space, realizing that their you know experiment really isn't done yet. Um, we meet, uh, we get the the full story of Crow happens at, at this point, where we learn that uh, Crow as a character. Uh, is, in fact, the one deviant who is basically immortal. His power is immortality. Um, and so, unlike all of the rest of the deviants who die within a few years, he's actually been around all of this time, and, like the Eternals, has been faking his death over and over again, uh, and pretending to be his own son or his own grandson, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he's also been kind of like having a you know, bit of a, a side flirtation, a side romance with Thena uh, you know, over generations, basically. Um, we also learn in this story that many of the gods allowed the new god, the allowed the Eternals uh, to basically, when they withdrew from Earth and stopped, kind of like interfering with, with the the uh, affairs of humans uh, a couple thousand years ago, um, the Eternals were like allowed to pretend to be the gods right? Like, uh, like uh, um, Gilgamesh actually performed some of the great feats that were uh, assigned to Hercules in his myth. Hercules didn't actually do those himself. Uh, it was Gilgamesh who was pretending to be Hercules, etc., etc., you know, with, like, various other characters. This was generally regarded as a pretty uh, impressively unsatisfying ending, uh, <laughs> you know, to the stories. It did not... Uh, uh, you know, it, it did not feel very Kirby. It did not feel like uh, like it was satisfying. And several other writers uh, would pick up the Eternals over the next few years and try to do their own interesting stories with them. Um, Marvel, at that point, and D- Thomas primarily, but other editors, started retconning uh, the Eternals. Once we kind of like have established their part of the Marvel universe, kept putting them into stories set in the past. Uh, we decided that the superhero in the Golden Age called Hurricane was actually Makari in disguise. Uh, we decided that Crow uh, had actually been uh, the personification of Satan, uh, and we get our imagery of like what the devil looks like and everything from uh, from from Crow basically like behaving like he was a god of evil. Um, we decide that the uh, aliens who lived on Titan. Um, that uh, Jim Starlin had been doing that, that were in fact actually Eternals from earth who had moved to Titan. Um, and so therefore Thanos and Star Fox uh, are actually both Eternals, um, just kind of like from a different branch of them that were living in space. Also when Marvel boy went to Uranus and met uh, a bunch of like human looking aliens there, those guys were also Eternals who had like buggered off from earth uh, a long time ago. So you know, we keep kind of like sticking them into these stories and making them part of the uh, of the Marvel background. Peter Gillis is writing Iron Man in the early '80s, and he gets a shot at them. He has always been a fan of the Eternals. He's a big Kirby guy, and he writes um, a story in 1983 that is a well re- well received uh uh try with the eternals iron man gets to kind of you know interact with a bunch of them and a lot of their backstory is is revealed roger stern starts using the eternals in the avengers um shortly after that iron man story and he actually works starfox onto the team and has you know like the revelations basically of the uh the eternals learning about the uh their their uh, out in outer space for the first time as part of like the stern avengers stories after after stern does it uh gillis gets a shot um because he enjoyed writing them so much in the iron man he basically gets a limited series um based on the eternals which is going to kind of like you know finish their story um you know like reveal uh crow and all of his like plans and uh you know like wake up one last celestial who's been sleeping etc cetera, etc cetera. um And it's going to be a whole 12-issue epic. Jim Shooter, uh, the troublesome and annoying editor of Marvel at the time, as we have established in multiple uh, episodes at this this point, hates Peter Gillis' writing. He reads the first few issues of uh, Eternals when it comes out, and he can't stand it. It's miserable, it's talky, it's slow, it's too complicated, and he gets into such a big fight with Gillis that he actually fires him from his own limited series before it's over. Uh what was supposed to be a twelve issue limited series, Peter Gillis actually only gets to write the first eight of them before he is fired. Uh and leaves Marvel entirely at the time. Uh and Jim Shooter brings in Walt Simonson uh to finish the final four issues of the story to like make it more action-y and interesting. Um it you know, the that limited series is problematic and complicated. Uh we don't see most of the Eternals again for a bit until Cersei winds up joining the Avengers in the 90s. Cersei in the comics is a very different character than she appears in the movies. She is a kind of a party animal. Uh, she is, you know, like in, in each version of her throughout history, that when she kind of like interacts with humans, she is always a celebrity, right? And she is always, uh, you know, like famous and beloved. And throws the best parties, and collects the best art, and is just generally, uh, you know, uh, uh, a, a very kind of like flighty character who learns during the time of her run in the Avengers kind of like to be a hero for the first time, um, and so is really uh, kind of like presented as a very different character than the one we actually get to see in the movies. Um, when post the uh, you know Marvel bankruptcy and, and meltdown. The Eternals had not appeared for a very long time, for several years. Um, Neil Gaiman came to Marvel in the mid two thousands and was basically like worked out a deal where he was going to do three series, uh, limited series for them. And the first one was sixteen oh two, which was very popular and well received, and you know won a bunch of awards and everything. Um, And he requested the Eternals to be his second one because he was a big uh, Kirby fan and very much wanted uh, his, you know, to to have his chance to tell a story of the Eternals. Um, And so he did a limited series in which the Eternals have all apparently been turned into humans and forgotten who they are. And are just kind of like living among humans, not realizing that there's anything special about them, not realizing that they're immortal until their memories start to return. And then they have to kind of like, you know, track each other down and come together and find out who it was who took away their memories and, uh, you know, like what what their new situation was. And in the end, it is revealed that all of this uh, stuff has been a plot by the Eternal known as Sprite, uh, who has been stuck at a physical age of 11 years old, basically for, you know, tens of thousands of years and is not happy about it. And wants to turn human so that uh, he, because it's a he in the comics, um, can experience what it's like to actually grow up. Which, you know, once again is kind of like regarded as a relatively unsatisfying uh, ending to what seemed like a pretty cool mystery of the first few issues. Um, Realizing that it's all just kind of like a plot from a, you know, Peter Pan-like kid who just wanted to, you know, be human and grow up. uh, Was kind of a bit of a letdown of the, you know, of the ending. Um, Gaiman has never actually uh, finished his third uh, thing, whatever it might be for Marvel. Um, his, you know, when he, when he came, it was a big thing about how he was going to do three series, um, and he only ever actually did two of them. We don't know who the third, uh, what the third would be. Won't the that. someday we will get it. Yes, exactly. Uh, the Eternals have continued to kick around. They've had a couple of other limited series after that. Uh, they had a uh, they had a run that was uh, by uh, the Naus and uh, Acuna in two thousand eight two thousand nine that lasted nine issues, um, and then just recently in the Avengers uh, had a kind of like big massive epic uh, the Dark Celestial storyline um, in which the Avengers were interacting with the Celestials and also incidentally the Dem- the Deviants and, and the uh, the Eternals um, that has been very well regarded. I've only read a couple of issues of it, so I'm, I'm, I'm behind on that one. Um, but that was so successful that Kieran Gillen uh, got a, you know, permission to start a fifth uh, Eternals series uh, just the, the, uh, earlier this year. That I The first issue of it, I think, shipped in March, so I think we're up to like issues six or seven of it now. And then, once again, I've only seen one or two of those, but they look pretty good. So. And that is where we are at the time that the, uh, the, that the movie
0: comes out. I'm to see, I haven't read the Gillen series yet, but I'm interested to see where it goes because they don't. I don't think they're doing too well by the end of that Avengers arc, if I'm remembering it correctly. The Eternals as a group are. Yeah, I think they. Yeah. I think they dead.
1: They they might they might all be dead and then are coming back,
0: right? Okay, yeah, that makes so, sense.
1: I think in the series they are they are resurrected yet one more time. So,
0: because I mean, you can't have
1: them just you know sitting around dead when the movie comes out, right? That's,
0: right. Uh, Obviously. That's yeah. So um, yeah, they, I think they all get killed off screen <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and then they just find Icarus
1: so that like Iron Man can, in fact, actually do most of the fighting, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, um, yeah, so it, it uh, is a
1: franchise that has been, shall we say, mistreated over and over again over the years. So,
0: yeah, it's it was uh, when they originally announced the movie, I thought it was a weird one, um, right. kind of like Inhumans level of kind of a weird one for them to pick, um. And I say this
1: as an enormous Kirby fan, it's not the obvious choice, right? You know, I mean, I was glad to see it because I'm a, I very much enjoy those 19 issues.
0: I've never read any of the original. The only, my, my main experience comes with them, um, from the nineties Avengers comics with Cersei star Fox, right. To a Gilgamesh. Um,
1: Oh, right. Gilgamesh is also an Avenger for uh, 20 minutes basically. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Go, uh, and he kicks around Hercules, Hercules right um all right but starting here um we're going to talk about spoilers um exactly have, this, you this is your point this
1: is your chance to turn off if you have not seen the movie yet
0: mm-hmm. if you watch a shang chi episode same thing we've already seen the movie too much on trailers and stuff uh for fear of leaking something for so um go Let's ahead see the movie
1: and then come back and listen to the end of this
0: and then come back all right, well, hope you enjoyed the film. Uh, so uh, let's start just talking about general things. What did you think of the movie, today, Aaron?
1: I liked it. I didn't love it. Um, I'm not even going to put it, I say, in the top half of Marvel movies. Um, but it's certainly not nearly as bad as the ones I don't like. You know? <laughs> That's, I, I actively dislike Thor 2. I actively dislike Iron Man 2. It's nowhere near that bad. Um, Not to be that guy, and obviously I'm fairly well known as a Jack Kirby fan uh, and, you know, fanboy, but I honestly believe everything that they did in this movie that went away from the original decisions that Kirby made for the characters was wrong. And I don't say that saying that I wanted to see a movie that was just the comics, right? I agree that there were changes that need to be made. Um, And I'm not referring to the idea of making them more multicultural of the gender swaps or anything like that is completely in favor of all of those things. It was actually lovely to see, you know, like a, a, a broad and diverse, you know, like spectrum of characters represented. Yeah. I but think as,
0: all the actors probably did just to kind of you know, jump in on that, on that point. Um, mm-hmm. all the actors I think did a good job with what they were given. Well, most of them. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I, I, there were a couple I didn't care for. So yes. But. Oh, well,
0: let's get into that after you finish their, your current thought. Sure.
1: But the actual story, the plot points, I think, were mistakes. Right? The mm-hmm. idea that the Celestials are not, you know, these like silent, unknowable, inscrutable space gods, who's like, you know, whose uh, whose who's thoughts and plans we can only kind of like guess at because they're so far above and advanced of us. Instead, we get, you know, Erishem, who is super chatty during the entire movie, right? Like, he's, like, totally willing to talk to anybody using completely ordinary language and just is, you know, uh, willing to tell the Eternals that he made a mistake, right? That's what, who, what kind of celestial are you? This is your, you know, this makes no sense whatsoever. The idea that there are only 10 Eternals at all, um, and they're not made from humans, but they're made from, like, I don't know, Robots of some sort in you know like a giant spacecraft somewhere, um, and most of all, turning the de- the deviants basically into animals, right? Like deviants are people. Deviants can talk. Deviants can plot. Deviants are interesting. You can interact with them. Turning them into big you know spindly wire monsters or whatever, I think was a horrible mistake from from a plotting point of view. For it, it made it took all of the interest out of them. We finally wind up with one who can talk for two minutes and he gets, you know, just aced so quickly that we never get to see him actually do anything or uh, take advantage of what seemed like a deviant plot that was running through the entire movie to become more advanced, right? Like he becomes more advanced and then Athena kills him in six seconds. And okay, well, thanks for showing up, Crow. That was great. So in most of those ways, I found it unsatisfying. That said, very pretty, well directed, good fight scenes. Many of the characters were appealing. I just didn't for, for me. It's the plot that doesn't work. The rest of the stuff I think worked just fine.
0: So, not being as familiar with it as you are, the um, the limiting the eternal to ten was definitely kind of weird to me, especially because there were definitely reports that the Hercules was supposed to be in there as like a background. Mm-hmm. Um, the Chinese, I I agree with you about the Celestials thing they should communicate through like and they could have done everything that he... like flashes picture having what well, explain it right um there's no reason for him to be so like hey guys how's it going <laughs> Exactly, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, i mean going... like it should be the effort of like the greatest minds in the world to like figure out what the uh, eternals uh, what the celestials are doing right this is a this is a you know, Reed Richards, Tony Stark level, like brain power problem. And instead he's just like, Oh no, let me explain to you my entire plan.
0: I'm not a hundred percent sure that crow is dead. Um, cause he's was healing the whole time. So like they could always come back for another one, have him grow um, back
1: from his head being cut off or whatever.
0: Yeah. And he was very much like a secondary antagonist. So it was like kind of, I, I hope that they, if they do he's, another, he's honestly one of the
1: most interesting characters of that first core 19 issues. Mm-hmm. And I very much am unhappy that we have not gotten to see him because he's the, you know, he's the plotter. He's the thinker. He's the one who's got a plan. He's been working on his plans for thousands of years. Um, he's, you know, he's like the instigator of an awful lot of the action in the actual mm-hmm. comics and having him turned into this, I thought was just a dude, you did this guy wrong. This is, this so
0: is he some of the, I don't know, essence out of Fina before he got his- my thought is we would see him evol- even more evolved in a future movie. Okay. Um, that he if, might be if, there. If they feel
1: like making this up to me, I would be here for it.
0: Yeah, like <laughs> that, that was kind of like my, my read of it. Um, right. The fight scenes, though, I agree with you, were really good. Um, for like, you know, of the more um, high-powered um, movie- Marvel movies, sometimes the higher power ones, the fight scenes get a little bit too hard to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I thought these ones were really good. Which characters didn't you like? I'm just curious. There were a couple that I, I thought... Did not,
1: I was not impressed by the acting jobs of Richard Madden or Gemma Chan. I didn't okay. care about that. I thought they were both. I, th-
0: I thought Madden was being... I thought his his turn kind of explained some of why he was being so off. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and I thought... I, I, I kind of like. Gemma Chan she was kind of given a she had to just be like you know uh, I don't know once again I totally confess
1: I part of my problem with her might be you chose Cersei to be that character yeah right like Cersei is so different from that in the comics Cersei is such a you know it's such a life of the party character and this woman is just dull and like you know uncertain and Okay, we can get through. You know, like the it, it's it's a tough situation that like Ajax, quote unquote, chose you to be the new leader or whatever. But I never saw anything in her uh, as the story went along to like have a good reason why Ajax chose her. Right? There was you know, I, I would have picked any of, of several of the other ones to be the you know to be the leader before her. Yeah. Festus, maybe.
0: Uh, yeah. Right. But yeah, uh, she. Um, I think she. Yeah, her character, she was burdened with being strong, you know, Right. not even all that strong, but female heroine, kind of. Um, I yeah.
1: love the entire sequence. We were joking about this after it came out, after we came out of the theater, going like, she. we have an entire scene where Cersei says, okay, you guys have to distract the bad guys, you know, you've got to distract Icarus and everything, so I can go to the volcano and, you know solve the problem, right? Like you guys just could, you know, like delay him for a bit. And they're all like, okay, you you got it, you know, and then a fifteen minute fight scene ensues. Mm. And we cut back to <laughs> Cersei, who is still trying to get to the volcano, like running like a normal person. And the volcano's yeah. like twenty miles away. And it's like, how long did you expect us to have to like delay this guy? <laughs> right? This is, you know, it's gonna take you hours to get there at this rate.
0: Yeah. That was that was a little strange, especially yeah. she had a super speed person there who could have just
1: who could have picked her up and carried her there in two seconds. When I mean, completely yeah. would have removed that entire plot point, but instead, no, nope, sorry, we got to have a fifteen minute distract the bad guys scene so that she can just run across lava for for forever and and still never get there.
0: And I, and I guess it's maybe it's a issue for like I guess future movies, but a lot of the characters who survive were the characters who they spent less time with. Um like or who you know I mean like um I, I actually like that what's his name didn't come back. Um that Cal Kingo I, did not come back, yes. Yeah, I like that Kingo didn't have like a last minute save or anything that he was just like no and didn't didn't show back up.
1: Right. That and, he wasn't boomerang from the Suicide Squad, right? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I like that he he did not come back. But he was one of the characters they spent a lot of time with, <laughs> and then he's just gone for the finale. Um whereas I guess the other most uh, maybe developed character there was Dro- Droog and uh, of the, you know, good guys in that last mm-hmm. scene, maybe Droog right. or maybe Festus, but I think Droog had more scenes. Right. Um, the, and, you know, Makara had basically, oh, hey, Makara's here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Well, they never <laughs> went- She's apparently been sitting in the, you know, lobby of their spaceship for however, however long it took for them to, you know, get back together, yeah. so...
0: Which was under the ground, so I'm not quite sure how she got there. Right. But,
1: yeah. Um,
0: yeah. Uh, so I thought that was a little bit of a strange.
1: Um, there were a lot of clunky bits that, like, I think another editorial pass over the plot would have, you know.
0: Oh, and the Icarus, the Icarus reveal, big spoiler. If you didn't stop for the other spoiler, <laughs> just just stop listening. Um, but the the Icarus reveal, where he. Um, where you know he's the bad guy the whole time i thought it was a really good idea because he was so set up to be like uh, you know superman kind of but they told us too early i felt like we should have gotten the flashback like when he, like right after that as a you know what i mean yes i thought it was it was an odd choice to do it that way because it took kind of took some of the shock out of Exactly. We know so
1: far before the other characters who have not heard it yet.
0: Yeah. Right. It was it, like the reveal would have been so much better if it was. If it was an editing mistake in my mind.
1: Yeah. Well, like I said, it was. I, I think the, the script could have used another pass at least to yeah. you know, like straighten out a few of these. Things.
0: Definitely. Um,
1: but like I said, gorgeous in many ways. It's still totally worth your time. It's it, it's better than the bad ones. Um, you know, I as far as like, the Marvel good. the Marvel universe goes, but. What do I rank it at? I'm
0: looking at my list. I have it at 19. That sounds plausible to me. Somewhere in there, yeah. Yeah, like back. You know, there's 29 total movies plus TV shows. Right. Um, and I've got it in the you know this week the, the comics school. guys explain Chang I, 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 have uh, Not
1: made such a list, but I don't think I would be far off in my number for that.
0: So I think it better than Black Widow, but that's kind of like.
1: I would put it right around Black Widow. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay.
0: I've got I've got Black Widow quite a bit. That sounded like 25. Okay. So let's
1: quickly, as long as we're doing spoilers and everything, let's kind of like quickly cover the characters uh, who are uh, spoilerifically showing up. Absolutely. Um, we talked briefly about uh, about Thanos' brother, Eros, um, who is uh, uh, the, the the hero called Starfox. Uh, Starfox first appeared as a supporting character in the um, Adam Warlock stories uh, that kind of like introduced uh, Thanos as a bad guy in the first place. Um, once again, that's Jim Starlin uh, doing stuff that at the time was not connected to anything that Kirby was doing, except in the vague sense that you know Starlin had read New Gods and kind of wanted to do a New Gods-y kind of thing. Um, but it wasn't until after the fact, retroactively, that Starfox and uh, and uh, Thanos were added to the family of the Eternals, basically, as just as an explanation of where they came from. Um, Eros is. Uh, you know, his, he can fly. He's super strong. Um, he's a very he's got very advanced technological skills because he comes from a super advanced society, etc. The eternal power that he has, the thing that he can do that nobody else can do, is that he can psychically manipulate the pleasure centers of your brain. Um, this is a you know very poorly defined superpower that has, shall we say, been used embarrassingly several times over the course of uh, Marvel history, um, where basically he will be in a fight with somebody and then he will kind of like use his psychic abilities on them and kind of, you know, have a mental beam kind of thing coming out of his head. And then we get to see whoever it is that he's blasting, we get to see what their O face looks like.
0: (laughs) Um,
1: And it's not a good look when it's Captain America or something, right? (laughs) So this is not something I wanted to know about Captain America. The character was, you know, like a bit of an embarrassment uh, as far as like how he was handled occasionally. Um, Peter David in his She-Hulk run did an entire set of stories in which Star Fox is basically accused of date rape. um, Using his powers on people without their consent uh, to, you know, like attract women and that sort of thing by like stimulating their pleasure centers. And She-Hulk has to actually... Uh, like you know, it's, there's there's an entire trial that She-Hulk uh, is involved in, in which Peter David basically takes the piss from all of the other writers who have been working on Star Fox, who have worked on Star Fox over the years and what a, kind of like a ridiculous power that is, and uh, Star Fox has, he basically kind of like embarrassed Marvel into not using the character for quite some time and so the idea that we're bringing him back now for the movies, I am intensely curious to see what it is they're doing with him
0: I'm very confused, because there's other characters that they could have be, like, fill what it looks like the role of being a space eternal are. Mm-hmm. Or Marvel Boy, since we've already established that he's already connected. to Absolutely, Marvel Boy. There are tons of other uh, space characters um, that they could have used for this. So it's kind of weird to, to me at least, to bring in Star Fox, especially as Harry Styles, which is also weird to me. Uh, Because I don't, I was I was in a uh,
1: a theater that had a great many unspoiled teenage girls Uh uh, when they saw it, and the the shrieking from the back of the theater was really hilarious.
0: Is is he an actor? I've never seen him
1: act. (laughs) I'm I'm not sure. I think he's done one or two other things, but they've always been very you know kind of like broad. Hey, I'm just being Harry Styles on screen kind of thing. So,
0: I'm 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 also kind of guessing that he's a
1: bad guy. Well, we're gonna have, we'll, we'll have to see how they actually like wind up using him, right? Like in the comics, he has always been a good guy, but kind of like a vaguely embarrassing one. So,
0: right, yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not sure. He, he had an interesting uh, entrance. Oh, we didn't yeah. talk about what did, what did you think of uh, Angelina as uh, Athena?
1: Once again, that's not my Athena. For the character that she was, I thought she did a perfectly acceptable job doing the acting for it.
0: Um, you know, a little off. I don't know.
1: Yeah, she she was handed some of like Icarus's rage, right? right. Like Icarus as a character, Icarus's like you know uh, original characterization, right? Like he's the one who has been the defender of humanity for so long, the most active of the Eternals, and he's the one who is fighting the deviants all the time, right? Right. So any time at any point, uh, when like cooler heads should prevail. Over the course of the stories, when it's like, we need to work together with the Deviants uh, in order to solve this bigger problem or whatever, Icarus is always the one who fucks that up, right? Because he he will not trust a Deviant no matter what, right? He always assumes the worst from all of them. And even in situations where, for whatever reason, they have to do it, it's always Icarus's temper that screws things up, you know, in the story, right? So the idea that, like, Icarus was going to be kind of, like, under control and Athena is the one who has, like, uncontrollable fighty-fighty rage or whatever was a weird division for me because usually it's exactly the opposite in the comics. Right. Right? Usually Athena is the thoughtful one who is trying to, like, come up with a plan and be logical and be wise as the actual... She's the goddess of wisdom. Not She's not a warrior goddess, right? She's not the goddess of war. That's not who, that's not who Athena is, right? So, I mean, like, why... You know,
0: I was also just amazed that she uh, survived the film because I figured they were not going to pay Angelina Jolie for... To, to come back a second time, yeah. Apparently. like Instead, we've
1: apparently sent her off into space to do whatever the space thing is going to be now for the next yeah. story. So,
0: Yeah. Um, okay, so showing up with, with Star Fox is uh, Patton Oswalt. Is Patton Oswalt,
1: yes. Playing uh, one of my favorite Marvel characters despite the fact that I really thought the CGI in the movie was terrible. I thought the look of him looked, it, it looked unfinished to me. It looked like that, I couldn't believe that that was like the, the, the CGI that we decided to go with, uh, he you know, for like a multi million like dollar movie.
0: Um, which was weird. Like he didn't feel like he was interacting with a plane.
1: Yeah. Like, yeah. Right. But anyway, the character is uh, Pips Gofern of the planet Laxadasia, uh, another Jim Starling character from the old uh, Adam Warlock days. Um and uh Pip used to be a, a human looking creature. Uh the the uh there's an entire human race on Laxadasia. Uh you know, the the name of which should tell you exactly how seriously Jim Starlin was taking these stories. Um and he is like part of the Laxadasian royal family, but he's like a very distant member of the family. There's no chance he's ever gonna get the throne, so he has basically lived a life of you know leisure and partying or whatever. And he falls in with a group of trolls uh, who uh, also are visiting the planet Laxadasia, um, and he drinks their booze and uh, wakes up sometime later, having been transformed into a troll himself uh, by drinking their alcohol. Um, and so he is, you know, kind of concerned about this uh, that he now looks kind of like freakish and everything. But uh, you know, he takes this all kind of like in good, you know, in good humor. Uh, there are His planet is then invaded uh, by soldiers working for the Magus, who is the main bad guy in the early Adam Warlock stories. Uh, The Magus is eventually revealed to be an evil version of Adam Warlock himself from the future, but at this point we don't know that part. Um, And so he is captured when uh, the Magus' soldiers come to destroy his planet, and he is thrown into a prison cell with Adam Warlock, and then the two of them escape together, basically. They kind of like team up. Uh, to escape and become partners. And so while Adam Warlock is kind of like the action hero of the series, they then also meet Gamora from um, Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, is also introduced in the storyline. And so the three of them basically become adventurers together. Gamora is, you know, like the assassin who has been trained by Thanos. At this point, we don't know. Uh, she's his daughter or she's his adopted daughter. She's basically just, a you know, like one of his assassins who turns on him. And then Pip is kind of, you know, like the comedy relief who also like can get them through the underworld and stuff, right? Like he knows, he always knows a guy if they need a ship or they need something illegal or something like that. uh, You know, like Pip is the guy with all the friends. Um, Pip gets uh, destroyed. His mind is destroyed by Thanos uh, towards the end of the Starling Run. And uh, Adam Warlock kind of like takes pity on him because he's still alive, but his brain has been destroyed Um, and takes his soul into the soul gem. So that he can live in paradise. Uh, Same fate actually winds up with Gamora. Um, And then, sometime afterwards, uh, basically everybody who was kept in the Soul Gem gets returned to life and gets like a brand new body. Uh, And so Pip comes back to life some years later uh, after having been dead in the Starlin run um, for a little while. Uh, He is kind of like kicked around the galaxy, he's shown up in various other uh, comics. Most recently, he was in X Factor. Uh, there was an entire set of stories in which it would be discovered that Pip had somehow wound up in the uh, in, in in debt to uh, Hela, uh, from the you know the Asgardian goddess of death, uh, and she was looking to collect, and she was like pretty honked off, uh, and so another Asgardian god basically, um, basically got her got Pip out of that deal uh, and hid him from Hela as long as he was willing to do a job on earth for this asgardian god Agamemnon. and um, so he went to earth where his job was to keep track of wolfsbane's pregnancy because wolfsbane had uh, had an affair with the asgardian prince of wolves and she was now pregnant with his child and was going to give birth to a you know half human half guardian half asgardian uh, being who was, like, prophesied to be all kinds of trouble in the future. And so Pip was, like, assigned uh, to keep an eye on her and inform the Guardians on what was going on with her pregnancy. So he became kind of a supporting character in X-Factor. He got himself hired as their secretary um, without revealing to them for quite a while what his actual reason for being there was. Um, and when that story was resolved and uh, Rain had her, had her wolf baby, basically, uh, that was kind of the last time that we saw Pip regularly in a comic. Um, he had not turned up again.
0: since. The X-Factor is something everyone should read. It's Yes, fantastic.
1: absolutely. Oh, it's fabulous, absolutely.
0: It's one of my favorite X-Men, and it's just a fantastic series. Um,
1: and then the last character that we see, of course, is Dane Whitman, uh, who, as soon as we you know, have, hear his name at the beginning of the movie, uh, most people, uh, Marvel fans, will recognize him as the, uh, as the Black Knight. Um, The Black Knight is a character that Marvel has had since the uh, Atlas days, actually. Um, Back in the 1950s, they did one of their adventure strips was the adventures of a guy called the Black Knight, who was yet another one of King Arthur's uh, knights running around, um, you know, fighting dragons and, uh, you know, just generally having Prince Valiant-type adventures. And he was uh, Sir Percy of Scandia, was his name. And uh, he wielded a sword... That was the like dark twin of Excalibur, right? And uh, it was like a magical black sword, um, and at the time seemed to be like a perfectly cool, just excellent magical sword. Um, when uh, Marvel, when when Atlas went out of business, um, you know the the Black Knight comic was canceled. But Stanley knew well that they still owned the rights to that name. They had the trademark uh, on on the character's name from when the comics were being published, and so very early on, he decided to reuse the name as a bad guy for Giant Man, for Henry Pym, in the very earliest days of of the Marvel post Fantastic Four number one. Um, And this guy was a uh, was a scientific, a science based villain, basically. Uh, who used a bunch of gadgets and, uh, you know, assorted weaponry that were in the manner of being a knight, right? Like, it was all just kind of like a shtick. Like, he had basically had a power armor suit uh, that was shaped like a knight's suit, and he fought with a lance that was a blaster, etc., cetera. Et cetera. Um, and he fought Giant Man a couple of times. And then Baron Zemo recruited him into the first Masters of Evil, um, as the, you know, like each of the heroes in the Avengers had one of their arch enemies join that team, right? And so he was going to be the guy who knew about Giant Man and could like help them kill him, basically. Um, and so he is part of the Masters of Evil, and in the last fight with the Masters of Evil, he basically gets knocked off his flying steed and falls into Central Park and we don't see him again. And, you know, there, no, there, he never, he doesn't, you don't even see him again at the end of that comic. That's like Avengers number, I think it's 15. And so it's just kind of assumed, oh, well, the cops got him or something, right? Because he's been knocked off his steed and he doesn't have his weapons. He probably wasn't that tough of, you know problem. Probably somebody threw him in jail. The writers never came to Stanley. never came back to explain what happened to him. This is, of course, exactly the sort of thing that gets right up Roy Thomas's nose, right? If a character has disappeared and it hasn't been explained, there must be a reason for it, right? And so when Roy Thomas is writing uh, The Avengers several years later, it's now like 1966, 67, he decides to explain what happened to that guy. And what happened to that guy was when he fell off his, uh, his flying steed, uh, he died. He broke his neck. <laughs> and so he's, he's dead. However, he has a nephew, uh, who is Dane Whitman, who uh, inherits everything that he owns. And so Dane Whitman basically gets the costume and the shtick and all of the stuff, as well as a magical sword that like belonged to their mutual ancestor, sir percy from you know the 12th century or whatever and it turns out that uh uncle uh the the bad guy black knight tried to draw the sword and failed he had like failed to pass its test he wasn't worthy of the sword and so not knowing what else to do with it he had just chucked it into a room and you know like figured he'd come back to it at some point and use his advanced science to figure out why he couldn't get this sword out of its scabbard. So Dane, of course, picks up the sword, and the sword says, "Oh, you're totally worthy, absolutely!" And like, opens the scabbard, and now he has a magical sword that can like cut through a tank, basically. Um, and so then he goes out. He gets a, a letter in the mail from the new Masters of Evil, inviting his uncle to come join them. Right? It's like, oh, you used to be in the Masters of Evil. We're gonna get, we're getting the band back together. We're gonna go attack the Avengers. You should totally come. You know, whatever. And so Dane gets this letter instead. And says, well, that they're going to attack the Avengers, that's terrible. I should show up and help the Avengers. Which he does, when, whereupon he is immediately like assumed by the Avengers when they see a guy wearing the Black Knight costume show up, assume that he's a bad guy and kick the shit out of him. <laughs> <laughs> so his, shall we say, his first appearance is a little ignominious. Uh, and basically he leaves in a huff. <laughs> you know, kind of like upset that the Avengers did not give him a chance to explain who he was. Uh and it is a misunderstanding that lasts for several issues until finally he gets the chance to actually like, help them and save them and is invited to become first a reserve member uh, and then later a full-on member of the team. In between those times, he gets sent back in time by a spell from the Enchantress to actually go uh, be the Black Knight uh, in Camelot for a while. Right? It turns out that some of the adventures of the Black Knight were not actually Sir Percy, who had in fact died before his story was over. And some of the later adventures that Sir Percy, Sir Percy supposedly went on were actually Dane uh, from the future pretending to be his ancestor in the past. Um, it's kind of complicated. But anyway, so that sword has turned up over and over again. It is uh, you know, one of the most powerful uh, artifacts, basically, of the Marvel Universe um, and uh dane has uh, you know had many adventures uh trying to keep it under control because there's like a horrible curse on it and if you like use it it can uh, uh, too much it can like make you more like violent and angry it constantly is seeking out uh to kill more people and only the you know strongest of wills and purest of hearts can like actually keep it under control and sometimes dane has not been the best guy to be uh handling it So
0: it is like sex mocking the power Sometimes it does. Like one time, it was a vampire sword. um, Yeah, exactly. um, Which is the version I think we're going to end up going with due to something that happens crazy.
1: Exactly right. If you have uh, missed the uh, the very ending of the movie, um, when uh, you know uh, uh, Dane has you know unwrapped it, he 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 gets a line in about how he has like this you know kind of like problematic set of ancestors. Yeah, some of his relatives are kind of complicated. Um, and then we see him, you know, like opening an old case basically, and deciding to, you know, like take the sword out and when he kind of like reaches for it, the sword kind of like shimmers and moves and it's clearly like a magical thing. And as he's, you know, like going to pick it up, there's a voice comes from off screen saying, are you sure you want to do that? Mr. Whitman <laughs> and the voice, you, you never see who it actually is. Right. And there were several people who thought that that was Samuel L. Jackson, right. That it was going to be Nick Fury. Uh, you know, like off screen. But in fact, uh, if you are not aware of this, allow us to be the first to tell you that that was in fact, actually Mahashala Ali, uh, who is the actor who is going to be playing blade in the next, uh, the next movie from, from Marvel.
0: Right. And it means that we might be getting some elements of my favorite MI 16. And I think one of your favorites too. MI 13. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Dracula invading Dracula dracula
1: against all of the british superheroes of the of the marvel universe it's a fabulous set of stories
0: and blade <laughs> and blade, yes, and, blade and black knight because they're both there for it. yep um and also, captain britain and everybody pete wisdom all those guys yeah pete wisdom is a character i don't think we will ever see in- but uh, uh
1: see
0: he would be cool um we, uh, live,
1: I, we literally are living in a world where we're, like, debating the arrival of Pip the Troll. I think at that point, all shit's out the window, right? As yeah. far as, like, who might show up.
0: Fair point. Uh, it may take us 20 or 30
1: years to get that far, but, you know.
0: Yeah, uh, they keep going through them. Uh, yeah, I love Black Knight. I was, I was so excited when I saw that last scene. Um, and he was, like, fine throughout the movie. He didn't get much to do. He didn't yeah. really get anything to do. Yeah, I kept waiting for him to turn up. Especially when somebody asks,
1: there's a there's a scene where I think it's Sprite asks uh, Athena is about the sword that she's carrying, right? And says, the, "Is that the ebony sword?" And she says, "No, it's his calibre blade." Yeah, just like a nice throwaway joke of like, "No, I've, I've got the I've got the good one," <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, like the problematic one. I don't know where that one is, and then we see it at the end of the movie, basically. So,
0: yeah, it was cool. He was very much there, I think, as like a teaser for whatever they're doing next. Totally, like, he was not. He was not he was a he was a side character. Right. Tertiary. I like the
1: idea that he now has his, you know, inspiration, his reason to go out and be a superhero or whatever is that his girlfriend's been kidnapped by a celestial. That's awesome. That's perfectly yeah. awesome. So
0: Oh yeah, I'm I'm a very I'm very excited. I am I was already kind of excited for the Blade movie, but Blade is not like one of my favorite superheroes. I am now super excited for the Blade movie. Right. Assuming that that also isn't the end of the Blade movie. Yeah, well we'll find out.
1: Yeah. So okay. I think that's it. We got this is I think we have wrapped this sucker up.
0: Yeah, there was actually relatively little um you know extra extra stuff going on. Um, you know, non non core eternal stuff going on in this one. Yeah. Well um, we had a
1: whole I mean dude we had ten eternals we had to explain. So Oh yeah,
0: and we only kind of explained them. Although right. To be fair, Jack Kirby only kind of explained them in the first.
1: Once again, right, yeah. And there's a bunch we didn't get to see. My two my two single favorite characters of the entire Eternal stories are uh, Ransack the Reject and Carcass, and neither of them got even to be in the movie. We finally get an Eternals movie, and they're not going to be in it. Well,
0: they, they definitely hinted about there being lots of other um, non Earth Eternals as being like a thing. So you might get sure. there. Well, but they're what? both deviants,
1: right? They're, that's the whole point right. is that they're like actual—they're actual, they're, they're actual
0: Taki deviants. So, well, deviants on other planets too. Yeah, maybe. Girls were sent there, so we might get them.
1: Okay, fine. I will—I will let you cheer me up in that case.
0: <laughs> Glad that I'm uh, capable. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. Um, I'm Steve Tasker. and I'm Darren Watts. Have a good night. Have fun.